If you've been with us, you know that we've been journeying through Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, the letter Galatians. And today we are wrapping up chapter 4. Next week we'll jump into chapter 5. The kids are a little ahead of us in, in kids' ministry. Uh, but as we've been going through this letter to the church at Galatia, we've been constantly wrestling with or constantly seeing Paul wrestling with the Galatians in relation to their faith. That is that Paul had gone to Galatia and had shared the gospel with them that Jesus had won a great victory uh, through his death and resurrection and that in him is the life we long for uh, and in nothing else. Now, after Paul had left, they had received the gospel after he had left. Other teachers came into this church, specifically Jewish teachers, and said, yes, we agree with Paul that Jesus has won a great victory, but what he, the victory he has won is kind of Moses-like. He's won a victory that allows us to come back and be Jewish people and therefore be gods again. And Paul is responding to that, excuse me, and what they're saying that, to that is that Jesus opens a door for us, but in order for us to get through, what we have to do is be, in essence, culturally Jewish. So they were advocating for circumcision, and they were advocating for uh, following all kinds of the Jewish festivals and seasons and the rituals and things like this. These were the things that the, the teachers were advocating for because if we didn't do those things, then we couldn't be pleasing to God. Then we couldn't have access to God. Because after all, we need to be children of Abraham, they would say. And of course, a couple of weeks ago, Paul started to get into this Abraham reality in the letter to the Galatians. And in getting into it, he's basically saying what Jesus has done is not just a Moses-like rescue from slavery. It's actually far greater it's an Abraham-like reconstituting of a family of God. That is, it is no longer about being a son or daughter of Abraham, that is, being culturally or ethnically Jewish that gets you access to God. It's actually simply being joined to Jesus. That being a brother or a sister of Jesus makes us sons and daughters of God. And of course, we've constantly been saying as we've gone through this book that while we, uh, in our current reality, often do not face the error that says we have to be Jewish in order to be pleasing or acceptable to God or have access to God, uh, as Christians, we still face some of the very same temptations or arguments or advocacies, except now, now it is that you must add these forms of religion. It's not just Jesus, it's also church attendance, or it's also uh, how you order your particular life, or uh, how often you read the Bible, or all of these other things. That is that we have to act in religious practices in order to be truly acceptable to God. Therefore, Jesus gets us in, or opens the door to us, but for us really to have access to God, we've got to perform religiously, or we've got to do it ourselves. And this is the very same thing that Paul is confronting in the church of Galatia. That is that we take Jesus and simply say, thanks for what you did, I'll take it from here. Instead of truly believing that Jesus has fully accomplished what we could never 
accomplish. So where we pick up the letter this morning is once again Paul jumping back into this reality of talking about what it means to be a son of Abraham. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn to uh, Galatians chapter 4 and starting at verse 21. Galatians 4, 21. We had just last week talked about this little parenthetical statement where Paul kind of went very personal with them, kind of gave them a pastoral plea instead of sort of his logical uh, apostolic presentation before. And now he's getting back to his Abraham discussion. Galatians 4.21, this is what Paul writes. Tell me, you want to be under the law. Are you not aware of what the law says? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and the other by the free woman. His son by the slave woman was born according to the flesh, but his son by the free woman was born as the result of divine promise. These things are being taken figuratively, or your translation might say allegorically. The women represent two covenants. One covenant is from Mount Sinai and bears children who are to be slaves. This is Hagar. Now, Hagar stands for Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to the present city of Jerusalem because she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem that is above and free, and she is our mother. For it is written, be glad, barren woman, you who never bore a child, shout for joy and cry aloud, you who were never in labor, because more are the children of the desolate woman than of her who has a husband." This was a prophetic word from the prophet Isaiah uh, talking more about the reality of exile than the actual experience of barrenness. That is that God's promise is going to come even in the midst of present difficulty. Verse 28, now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. At that time, the son born according to the flesh persecuted the son born by the power of the spirit. It is the same now. But what does scripture say? Get rid of the slave woman and her son, for the slave woman's son will never share in the inheritance with the free woman's son. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we are not children of the slave woman, but of the free woman. This is an incredibly complicated and complex passage of Scripture. And so I'm going to do what many of your cards, by the way, thank you for filling out the Galatians cards. Please continue to do so. So many of your questions were about this particular section because it's incredibly complicated and difficult to understand, especially for people so far removed from Jewish culture and history. But Paul is making uh, an argument directly within that. So let's try to understand this in, in pretty simple uh, ways and, and not lose the forest for the trees as we sometimes would in a, in a place like this. If you remember, the argument that these false teachers who are adding legalism, who are adding religious practice as a necessity to gain access to God. They're adding it to the gospel. The argument they're making is that the most important thing is that you be a son or daughter of Abraham. You have to, in some way, draw your lineage back to Abraham uh, because this is the way that God honors. After all, this is the person who God made his original covenant with, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, uh, and so forth uh, and so on. God said, from you, I'll make a great nation. So you have to be part of that. You have to be 
within that. Now, Paul has been saying a couple of things all along. First of all, that family was always a means to an end, always a means to bless the entire world. In other words, God's plan was not just a national Israel. And friends, in the modern evangelical church, we are way too caught up in that, by the way, but that's a talk for another time. But it was always a, a using a group of people in order to reach the entire world. And this, Paul realizes, is accomplished in Jesus, who is the ultimate fulfillment of Israel. But he also, Paul is coming at it, by suggesting to them, we need to rethink this Abraham thing. And so to people who are so caught up in being sons and daughters of Abraham, their whole identity is found in this. Paul asks a very interesting question. He says, well, which son of Abraham are you? And they probably would have been frustrated and flabbergasted by this question. But in order for us to understand it, we need to dip back into the book of Genesis a little bit to understand this question in particular. So many of you are familiar with this. Some of you, this might be uh, newer to you. Uh, Abraham was called from, uh, from a foreign land, somewhere near modern-day Iraq, somewhere in the Babylonian area. God called him and said, I'm going to make from you a great nation. I want you to move from where you are to this new land. Uh, it was an incredible promise by God, but it was also an incredibly risky thing for Abraham to do. Scripture is careful to tell us that Abraham was wealthy, that he was somewhat advanced in age, and that things were going good for him where he was. To take this risk with God was a huge deal. But Abraham does it. And part of it then, God says to him, listen, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He says, your descendants will number as many as the stars in the sky. And when he says this, he's thinking of the stars in the sky in Maine, not here, right? Where you can actually see multitudes of stars, not just one uh, in, in urban areas. At any rate, Abraham, of course, is blown away by this promise because there's something that's true of Abraham. He's incredibly old. His wife is younger than him, but still quite old. And they have no kids, right? And everything they have learned in their anatomy and reproduction classes would lead them to believe that this promise is going to be difficult to unfold, right? Things seem to be stacked against them. And so Abraham goes again to God and says, well, listen, how's this going to happen? And God reaffirms this promise to him. And so time goes on. And Abraham is 86 years old now, right? 86-year-old man. Now, I've seen lots of older folks who are really with it, but 86 years old, still no children. God has promised him an incredible nation. If Abraham is anything like me, he's already plotted how he's going to see this through for God, right? Thanks for the promise, God. I'll take it from here. And Abraham and his wife, Sarah, get together, and they basically say, listen, the writing's on the wall. There's no way this is going to happen from us. What about if you take my slave or my servant, Hagar, who is Egyptian, that's incredibly important in the story, because Israel is going to fall into Egyptian slavery for years and years and years, and this is a foreshadowing of that reality. What if you take her and, and lay with her and have a child with her? You'll still be the father. And it seems like a wonderful plan, as many of the plans we concoct seem 
because we can rationalize them, right? And they have a child, and his name is Ishmael, and God says that's not the answer to the promise. Fourteen years later, still waiting, God miraculously opens the womb of Sarah, and Isaac is born to great laughter from Sarah herself that God would fulfill this promise this way. And so Abraham, very much so, is the father of two sons. Two very different sons, but two sons. And so Paul is saying to this group in Galatia, both those who have received this message and the ones who are teaching it to them, that, hey, you've got to be sons of Abraham. This is the only thing that matters. Jesus is going to let you come and be Jewish. Paul is saying to them, well, the real question is, which son are you? And of course their answer is, well, we're sons of, we're Isaac's sons. We can trace our lineage back. We've done Ancestry.com. We have family trees. We can point. We are from Isaac. And of course that's absolutely true. By flesh and DNA, they were from Isaac. But Paul says something fascinating, right? He says, let's think about this allegorically. In other words, yeah, by flesh you're sons of Abraham like Isaac, but let's talk about the story of the two sons and let's ask what, what kind of sons you actually are. I think the question he's asking is not, are you sons of Abraham by flesh, but what kind of son of Abraham are you by faith? And Paul is going to hit them in an incredible blind spot by doing so. He presents to them a contrast. He says, there are sons of Abraham by faith like Ishmael, and there are sons of Abraham by faith like Isaac. And he says four things in, in contrast or comparison about them. The sons of, of Abraham by faith like Ishmael are people who are, who are a, a child who is born according to the flesh, a child who is born from slavery and therefore into slavery, a child who, this is my interpretation, uh, adulter is born through the adulteration of something good, right? The manipulation or the, the control power-based use of something that is good and, and making it bad. And the child of, of faith born like Ishmael is a, an earthly reality. It's the, this present Jerusalem, Paul is saying. So let's, let's talk about these things. What does it mean to be a child born of faith like Ishmael? Everyone know what I'm getting at, child born of faith, right? So in other words, what you're placing your faith in, therefore, leads to the kind of life that you're experiencing. And Paul says that kind of life, that's kind of like a child, allegorically. So Abraham, in his faith, had two different experiences, right? Isaac was born because God did something miraculous. Abraham had no part in it. Ishmael was born because God promised something. Abraham wasn't willing to wait and did it on his own. You see this? And these are two very different ways to process faith, even Christian faith. That is to say, is what Jesus has done really enough or is what Jesus has done only opening up so that now I have to act in order to achieve the promise of God? And so what you have really is Paul is saying to them, and you kind of get this already, 
Yeah, by flesh, you're children of Abraham like Isaac, but by faith, you're children of Abraham like Ishmael because what you're saying is to get access to God, to be in his presence, to be part of his family, you need to act. You need to move. You need to do something. And we struggle in the same way, don't we? That we rely and place faith on our self-effort. Whether we are people outside of the church who are relying simply in our own morality, in our good efforts, or within the church or some system of religion, relying on our religious efforts or activities in order to be in relationship with God. And Paul's saying that's, that's an Ishmael-like reality. And listen, it's not just about getting in, but it's about how we live. And so there's this kind of elephant in the room question behind the question here. And that is, what does it mean to wait on God, right? You've trusted in Jesus. You're part of his family. You believe that. But every act we take, uh, every behavior, every choice is all built on this faith. <coughs> and so we've said throughout this book of Galatians, it's not just about kind of what you believe to get into the family of God, but it's about how you live now in the reality of being part of it. And so what does it mean? I mean, what God did to Abraham in some ways is incredibly difficult, isn't it? You're going to be the father of a great nation. Just wait, right? But God, help me out. Oh, just wait. You ever been told to wait by God? Probably not audibly, but within experience. It's super challenging, right? Let's just be honest about it. No, not quite yet. Now, we believe that God is good. It's the only thing that sustains us through the waiting, but it's incredibly difficult, and it is so easy to fall into the human effort trap of Abraham and say, I believe God's promise, and here's how I'm going to achieve it. Do you see what happens in that subtle moment? And so the question is, right, well, does that mean we can't act? Right? Does that mean that we just have to sit and when, we got, when it feels like God's saying wait, that we just wait and all we do is pray and we don't do anything? And I, and I actually think that that's not true either. We have a tendency to really over-spiritualize things sometimes when God is clearly calling us in faith to act. But what Abraham does is takes that to a whole nother level. Right? God has clearly spoken to him that through Sarah, he's going to have this great nation. So when Abraham steps outside of that, he's clearly stepping outside of the plan of God. The problem is not that Abraham didn't sit in a room and pray 24 hours a day. The problem is that Abraham clearly stepped outside of God's intention. And let me just be more blunt with you, clearly stepped outside of the way God intends us to live, right? Was unfaithful to his wife. You might say, well, in the Old Testament, they had lots of wives. That's baloney. It's not baloney that they did. They did, but it was wrong, right? This isn't something that God said, yeah, Old Testament times, you can do that, right? That's not true. It was all garbage. That was all male power, misogynistic. Think about Hagar for a minute. She was not included in this decision, right? What about for her? We'll talk about her here in a second. And so Abraham clearly steps outside of it. He could have been active in pursuing God's promise, you know, without being too graphic here, by continually being intimate with his wife, right? 
This would have been being active and believing God's promise, but doing it within the means that God has provided. There's very different ways. It does not mean that you sit around and wait for God to levitate you and miraculously make you show up somewhere where you're supposed to be. No, you've got to walk. You've got to move, but you do it within the structure that God has placed before you. All too often, our faith, whether entry faith into or day-by-day faith in God is very often built on self-effort. It's a child of flesh. The second thing that Paul says about this reality of faith is that it's born from slavery into slavery. So in those days, as well as uh, in the horrible reality of American history that included uh, human slavery uh, as American people, in that system, if your parents were slaves and you were born, guess what? You were a slave too, right? The same as in Paul's day. And so Paul's using this imagery, uh, using it allegorically to say, listen, if, you, if your faith comes out of self-effort, that is slavery, right? Because your self-effort can never end. It's never enough. It never gets you to where you have to be. Then your life is going to be enslaved too. Do you see it? Because it will never be enough. You'll never be there. You'll always need to do more. You'll always need to fill the tank more. You'll always need more morality, more effort, more good acts, more church attendance, more of these things in order to make God happy. Instead of truly believing that Jesus has done enough. If you're born from slavery, you're born into slavery. And the third thing is that this, this faith child of like Ishmael comes from adulterating good things. And here's where we just need to be honest. I'm not sure there's great ways to explain it. But the story of Abraham is a story of victimhood for a lady named Hagar, right? What happened to her is not fair. It's not right. God doesn't condone it. It's not okay because it happened that way. All of it is incredibly wrong. And here's this person that God chose to be the example, the one who he's going to build his whole family through, and he royally screws it up. And in so doing, ruins this woman's life, right? He ruined her life, as if being enslaved wasn't bad enough. So many horrible things come out from the beginning of her being cast away, being sent away, uh, and, and to begin with, never being invited into this reality, being used and abused. Paul is clearly making a one-to-one correspondence to the Galatians between Hagar and the law, right? He's saying, hey, she's like the covenant on Mount Sinai. Why is he making that connection? Because what the Jewish people had done and what these teachers had done and were infiltrating in the church at Galatia was taking this really good gift of God, the law, which enabled a way for, for the people to be in relationship with God, a really good thing, And they were adulterating it. They were twisting it. They were making it ultimate. They were making it more important to God, more important than God. They were saying it was the end-all, be-all. And in the same way, while for us it's not the law, when we have faith that is built on self-effort instead of Christ's work for us, what ends up happening all of the time is that we take really good things and we abuse them, right? Religion is a really good thing. Sunday morning church attendance or whenever church gathers, a really good and important thing. 
regular Bible reading, a really good and critically important thing. A devoted life of prayer, really good and and incredibly important. And yet, when we make them the means by which we attain the ultimacy of God, what we've done is taken good things and we've totally abused and adulterated them. Do you see this? And this is what happens with religion. But people come to hope and they're like, why does this pastor whose whole job is religion never stop talking about how bad religion is? The problem isn't religion. The problem is us. See it? And this is what we do. Not to mention the way that we use and abuse other people in the process of attempting to achieve self-sustainability or earning God's favor. The story of Hagar is an incredible blemish, an incredible injustice. The last thing Paul says is that the, the faith child like Ishmael is the earthly city of Jerusalem. And here he's flat out telling them, yeah, you're children of Abraham, but spiritually you're children like Ishmael. It's modern day Jerusalem, but he's also not just saying that the Jewish system in the current day, he's also saying that this is the MO of the world, right? This is the earthly MO, that you've got to earn it, that you've got to be good enough, right? That you've got to do enough good, that you've got to perform enough religious actions in order to be acceptable to God. And so many of us, while we reject this in our heads, still hold deeply onto it in our hearts. And it is why we are not experiencing the freedom of the gospel in our life. We believe that God loves us when we perform for him. This is not the gospel. Here's the danger, right? The results of a faith like Ishmael, or a faith that is a product like Ishmael, is that it leads to two things. First is it leads to a life of wandering. This becomes Ishmael's life throughout the book of Genesis. God blesses him. He becomes the father of a nation. He certainly has opportunity to turn and worship God and yet goes in a different way. And again, Abraham has in many ways ruined his life for him. but he's known as a wanderer. And the picture there is someone who never has the security, who never has the acceptance, who never has the significance that he longs for in the depths of his heart. In the same way, if we are people whose faith bears this kind of life, this is our experience wandering from one thing to the next, trying to find meaning in life, wandering from one church to the next, right? And sometimes it's good to move from churches, especially if they're not preaching the gospel, but trying to find that thing instead of finding your value, your identity, your significance in God's love for you, in his welcome to you as part of his family. Our world is filled with sad stories of people who are longing to find that, and yet it's right there in front of them. And not just wandering, but the one thing that Paul specifically pulls out here in the letter to the Galatians is this idea of persecution, that Ishmael goes on to persecute 
Isaac. And we see this in the book of Genesis, that when Isaac is born, Abraham throws a great feast for him. And it says that Ishmael is mocking Isaac. And this is where Sarah says, you must dismiss them away. And rather than go into the right and wrong of all that, that's for another day. Here's the issue. Ishmael, probably of no fault of his own in some ways, is born into a life of not being good enough. Do you see it? Of not being the one, of always living in comparison to everyone around him, specifically Isaac. And it leads him to provocation, to engaging, because the only way to achieve Isaac's status for someone like Ishmael is to cut Isaac at the knees, to lower him down to Ishmael's level. And for so many people, for all of us in one way or another, because we are born out of faith that is through self-effort, not through God's gracious gift, we constantly live comparing ourselves to everyone around us. Maybe not secularly, although we do that too, but certainly spiritually. Oh, I'm better than them. Makes me feel good, but I'm not quite good as them. What are ways that I can pick? Jesus gets at this, right? Stop finding the speck in someone else's eye when there's a log in your own. What's he getting after? Not the issue of who's got bigger problems. The issue of you've got problems. And the way to deal with it is not through tearing someone else down so that your self-effort is enough. It's believing the gospel, not just intellectually, but in your heart. Here's the three dangers of Ishmael-like faith, right? The first is morality. And for many people in our world, this is what they believe. Access to God comes through morality. At some level, being more good than bad, right? And you might say, well, that's outside the church. And I would say to you, bananas. That's way inside the church. If I'm more good than bad, then God's going to be for me. That's not the gospel. The second is religious performance, right? Well, if I'm a good Catholic, if I'm a good Christian, if I'm a good Protestant, if I'm a good Methodist, if I'm a good this, if I do my things and bring my kids up in that way, and if I, if I read my Bible, if I do these things, then God's going to be for me. And I got news for you. That's not the gospel either. It's a life of slavery. And the third thing, and this was true for many Jewish people of the day, and that was the cultural lie, right? Well, yeah, I'm Jewish because I was born that way as opposed to personal faith in Yahweh God. And for many people in our world, and I would suggest probably some people who are sitting here with us today, your faith is much more based on the family you were born into or the church legacy that you've been part of than the actual work of Christ for you. But Paul says there's a whole different way. There's a whole different experience. This is the four things he says about being a, 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 a life of faith that comes through like Isaac. He says, whereas the, the, the Ishmael reality is born out of self-effort, born out of the flesh. The Isaac reality is born out of the gracious, gracious, miraculous work of God. It's a child of promise, not a child of flesh. Think about what happened when Isaac was born. Abraham had no part in that. I mean, he had a 
part. That's, you know, but God did this. He opened up Sarah's womb. This was a, a God thing. And when you have that experience, it totally changes everything else. Because now he says a child born into freedom is a free child, right? That is that a child born into inheritance has inheritance in our world financially, right? Or in class speaking, so, uh, so to say. To be born into a certain family affords you all kinds of privileges that if you were born into a different family doesn't afford you. Paul is saying, using that in an allegorical way, saying being born of the act of God, not part of a different family, affords you the full inheritance of the family of God, right? The best example I know, I mean, it's not a great example, is the orphan Annie, right? Everyone knows Annie, the musical Annie. The orphan Annie, like the orphanage experience or Daddy Warbucks, right? Which one do you want, you know? So being part of a family... It matters, born of the freedom. You experience the freedom. That is that your life is not engulfed and enslaved to needing to perform, to needing to be good enough, to needing to be free from guilt, to needing to exceed everyone's expectations in order for God to be happy with you, but truly, honestly believing that what Jesus has done actually has satisfied it for you. There is incredible freedom in this. And whereas a child born like Ishmael adulterates things that are good, a child born like Isaac glorifies that which is good. It leads us to an orientation of worshiping God, the one who keeps his promise, rather than feeling like we need to achieve it and we'll do anything we need to to get it. And Paul says this child is not like earthly Jerusalem. It's like the Jerusalem up there, he says. Speaking about heaven for sure in some way, but more importantly, speaking about the kingdom of God that is not of this world, the values that it means to be part of this family. It is a whole different way of ordering your life. Now, here's the secret. In and of ourselves... We have no choice in this matter, right? Ishmael had no choice. He didn't say, I want to be born of Sarah. He had no choice. Isaac had no choice. And I would suggest to you, we have no choice. Left to ourselves, we are children like Ishmael. This is what makes the good news of Jesus so incredibly Good, because there is only one child like Isaac, and his name is Jesus. Think about the story of Jesus with me for a minute. Mary was not barren, perhaps far greater a challenge. Mary was a virgin, and yet God opened her womb supernaturally, and Jesus was born a child of promise, the promised Messiah of his people. Many of you will remember the story of Abraham and Isaac takes an interesting turn shortly after he's born. God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son and I want you to walk up this mountain with him and I want you to lay him down, to build an altar with him and I want you to lay him down on an altar and I want you to 
kill him. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And we don't understand this. And yet what God is doing here is he's firming up with Abraham that Abraham really is believing in God's promise that he's not going to keep doing these Ishmael self-effort acts. Fascinating thing about this story is many of us think of Isaac like a little toddler, yet Isaac is grown up by now. And think about this. He's a smart guy at some level. He's carrying sticks. They're going up this hill, and he's saying, there's no sacrifice anywhere. And Abraham, who by now is what, 115? Like, he's really old now. Says, no, unfortunately, God has asked me to sacrifice you. Something incredible has to happen in that scene that probably we've never thought about before. Isaac has to agree. His 115-year-old dad is not wrestling him down and tying him on an altar. Isaac is trusting his father. And his father is believing in the promise of God. In the letter to Hebrews, we're told he must be believing that God's going to raise him from the dead. Geographically, just a few miles from there, this same son of promise, born miraculously from a virgin, is also led up a hill. There also is an altar of sorts built out of wood. It's a cross. And he also is a grown man. And he also must submit to what is happening. And there, at the cross of Calvary, Jesus trusts the Father and says famously in the garden the night before, not my will, but your will be done. And whereas on the mountain with Abraham and Isaac, God sent an angel to stop the sacrifice of Isaac and provided a substitute sacrifice caught in the thicket, Jesus himself is sacrificed. He dies a, a, a death that wins a great victory over sin and death itself. And he willingly submits himself to the Father. Don't you see it? The sacrifice that would have been of Isaac foreshadowed the sacrifice that was of the ultimate Isaac, the ultimate son of promise. And in the same way that Abraham believed that if God was calling him to sacrifice the son of promise, surely he would resurrect him. Three days later, after the cross of Calvary, the women and then the disciples come and find the tomb of Jesus empty. And the resurrection that Abraham thought possible in order for the promise to be achieved was, in fact, reality. The question Paul is saying is not, how do you be Isaac? The question Paul is saying is, Jesus has done what you cannot do. And the only way that you can be in relationship with God, in standing with God, is to stop worrying about the self-effort of religion and to stop worrying about being part of this earthly family of Abraham and instead be united to Christ. Christ.
the ultimate Isaac. Paul says of those who are truly united with Christ, that the free woman is their mother, right? He's not saying Sarah is more important than Hagar. He's simply saying that this is the only path to freedom. This morning, many of you are hearing this gospel message for the umpteenth time. Some of you, this is somewhat new. I plead with you to not feel like this is old news. The gospel is an everyday message for how we orient our life. Jesus says that I came to give life and life to the fullest. He did not mean that if you believe him now, some future day when you die, you'll have life. Certainly that's true, and certainly we thank God for that reality, but he also meant that you can have it now, but it only comes as a child of freedom. When we stop the self-effort and embrace the work of Christ for us. Paul says to the Galatians and to their false teachers in their midst, which son of Abraham are you? And they say, that's easy. And many of us this morning, we're saying, which son of Abraham are you? And you say, that's easy. I believe Jesus. I'm all for that. He says, no, no, no. The question is actually a little deeper than that. Spiritually speaking, by faith, in your life, which son of Abraham are you? And the only right answer is Ishmael. And the only hope for people like us is the son of promise, Jesus. Can I pray with you?